but his coming known shall be by the holy harmony which his coming makes in thee. Amen to that. Let us pray. Your Lord our God, open our hearts and minds to this reading of your word, that it might bring us closer to a true understanding of who you are and who we are. In Christ's name, amen. The lectionary reading for the first Sunday in Advent comes from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 24. Jesus has been talking about the coming of the Son of Man. And now he speaks of the necessity for watchfulness. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving, giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. So we've just listened to an account of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And you may be thinking, wait a minute, this is the first Sunday in Advent, aren't we preparing for Jesus' birth? Aren't we getting a little ahead of ourselves to be talking about the second coming? Well, perhaps these two events are intimately related as the initiation of a new era. I'll admit that when I realized that this was the passage about which I would be preaching, I began to have more questions than answers. It speaks about people going about their usual day-to-day -day activities, and suddenly, without warning, one person is taken and one is left. Jesus tells his disciples and us, by extension, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. So I'd like to take a poll of the congregation on this question, but before I give you the question, I want you to imagine that you are in a room talking to your boss or sitting in a chair speaking with a client or working with someone in a factory or talking to a friend or talking with someone on the street or doing whatever might be a daily activity for you. 
Is it better to be taken or left when the Son of Man comes? So raise your hand if you believe it is better to be taken. Okay, a few people. Uh, raise your hand if you think it's better to be left. And it looks like there's a large group of undecided. <laughs> well, that's actually very understandable because this is not an easy passage. Traditionally, it's been considered to be best to be taken, just as it was best to be taken into Noah's Ark before the flood came. Although, I wonder, have you ever thought about what it must have been like to be in that small ark with every known animal and creeping thin and for 150 days? But in any event, those who are taken are the elect, and they are taken up into God's grace and drawn into communion with Christ. The alternative is to be left in our own limited reality. So we begin Advent with a story about judgment, and that's where I begin to feel uneasy. Aren't we all able to experience communion with Christ now? Doesn't the Christ break into our lives in present time? Is the end referred to in our morning passage, the time when we die, or the end of the world as we know it? Well, I can tell you that both positions have been defended by theologians going back to the early church fathers. Amidst my confusion about what to do with this passage, I read a story for Thursday Voices a few weeks ago. And most of you know that Thursday Voices is a group that meets here at Third Church every Thursday from 12 to 1. It happens to be an amazing group of people. And you are all invited to attend this group, to be part of this group. The story that moved me was one by Michael Linval. Michael Linval is the pastor of Brick Presbyterian Church in New York City. And the story is entitled, The Organist. The story is about a small country church, the first Presbyterian church of Carthage Lake, Minnesota whose last installed pastor left 60 years before, taking with him his wife, who happened to be the church organist. One person stepped up to become organist. She had no organ background, but she was going to take the place of the organ. And over that 60-year period, one church elder named Lloyd took it upon himself to arrange for a minister to come preach to that tiny congregation once a month, which was all that they could afford. And during that same period of time, that woman I mentioned has volunteered to play the organ, and the congregation comes together every Sunday to sing and pray and study the scripture whether it happens to be that Sunday when the preacher comes or not. 
The organist happens to be Lloyd's sister-in-law, Agnes. She appears to have an intellectual disability. She could only learn three hymns. And she has played these same three hymns every Sunday for the past 60 years. When the visiting pastor in the story comes there to preach, he discovers that, he, that his chosen hymns are for naught. <laughs> the organist, Agnes, plays her usual three hymns. She ignores his announcement of the opening hymn or of the middle hymn, and the pastor gets the message and doesn't bother to announce the third hymn. Now, in addition to Lloyd and the organist and the visiting pastor, there is one more key character in the story, a young man, Lloyd's grandson, who also happens to be an organist. In fact, he's a very accomplished organist who trained at the Eastman School of Music, no less, and was serving at a large suburban Houston church until three months before. He is told to move on when the church leadership becomes aware of his AIDS diagnosis. He was rejected by his parents, but Lloyd took him in those three months ago prior to the visiting pastor's Sunday appearance. After the service, the young man, whose name is Neil, tells the pastor that Lloyd had asked him if he wanted to take over as organist. But he could tell that Lloyd was relieved when Neil declined the offer. Neil knows how important it is to Agnes to continue in her role, playing the same three hymns every Sunday. Moreover, Neil is able to play the organ during the week with the church doors open in good weather, and the surrounding townsfolk sit out on their porches, and they applaud. But the most striking thing to me about the story is how this church impacts this visiting preacher. Before I tell you about that, I need to tell, tell you why this story feels so powerful to me. I was recently elected this past summer to the Board of Trustees of our Presbytery. And in that capacity, I have come to know the circumstances of a number of small churches in the Presbytery. I visited one of these housed in a beautiful church, an absolutely beautiful sanctuary dating back to the 1800s. This church numbers now only about 40 people. They pay their bills by drawing on their endowment. The congregation is able to raise about half the cost of maintaining the church, and the other half comes from the endowment. But that will be gone in a few years, particularly in light of needed boiler and roof repairs. As I sat among this group of trustees of this church, numbering about five people, and the clerk of session, they were talking about whether they should put on a 50-year roof. And I asked them if that seemed reasonable. 
Did they think that they would be able to maintain this building more than a number of uh, years, more than a few years? Interestingly, they didn't become angry at my questioning this. Rather, they were a faithful remnant who spoke about wanting to do ministry in the name of Jesus Christ. They would do it in the building or they would do it without the building. How do they live out Christ's call to keep awake and be ready? And what does this call mean for us, a church with resources and a mission to be the church, building inclusive community to serve the needs of the city? I'd like you to think about that while I return to the preacher in Michael Lindvall's story. He preaches on Jesus' commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. He also incorporates these words from John 14, verse 18. I will not leave you desolate. I had to do a bit of a word study on the word desolate. Jesus appears to mean here, I will not leave you without the comfort of my presence. But the preacher appears to have some doubts. During the prayers of the people, he finds himself silently asking God why we come to God with the same prayers each week. Prayers for peace, for health, for hopes. Though we feel that these prayers go unanswered. Or do they? When the young organist Neil goes up to speak with the preacher after the service, he he thanks him for the sermon, but he states poignantly that the small congregation knows the love one another message. And he adds, they have not been left desolate. Wow. They have not been left desolate with 11 members plus Neil in the congregation, an organist who can play only three hymns, and resources sufficient to have a preacher come only once a month. Yes, they have not been left desolate because they appreciate the gifts of a woman who has played the organ every Sunday for 60 years with her repertoire of three hymns. Because they embraced a young man with AIDS who had been rejected by a large successful church and by his own parents because they are in an environment where it seems very right for this young man, an accomplished organist, to leave to Agnes the responsibility for Sunday music and to attend each service sitting in the congregation with his church family because he has been welcomed into that family. As we all know, being church is not a building nor is it excellence in any activity. Being church is caring about every person in the congregation's reach and staying with that task, no matter what the challenges might be. Being church is to recognize every person's gifts for service and to resist the impulse to make service in the church a competition about who's the best endowed 
for service. It's about putting persons first, being churches to bring reconciliation and compassion to the world through the church, through its facility, through its music, through its teaching, through its service, most importantly, through its people, all those drawn into its sphere of influence. The Carthage Lake Church had staying power. Now it suggests that, had, that they had been taken up into the grace of God. And they didn't have to wait until the end of time. This grace came through their reliance on trust and hope in Jesus Christ. They understood compassion and inclusion, which is an extension of trust and hope. And we have it here at Third Presbyterian. It's more important than the building or beautiful music or outstanding guest speakers because being in the church requires alertness to Christ's call to live as a redeemed people. This is not about a specific date for Jesus' return. Indeed, Jesus comments that not even he knows the day and the hour. We must live as if each choice we make, every moment of opportunity to serve Christ in others were our last. The building, the music, the word preached and taught are great blessings. And they are great blessings here in this church. But they must not lull us into complacency. I'd like you to look at the front cover of your bulletin and consider what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying in these words from his Testament to Freedom. Look up, you whose eyes are fixed on this earth, you who are captivated by the events and changes on the surface of this earth. Look up, you who turned away from heaven to this ground because you had become disillusioned. Look up, you whose eyes are laden with tears, you who mourn the loss of all that the earth has snatched away. Look up, you who cannot lift your eyes because you are so laden with guilt. Look up, your redemption is drawing near. Something different than you see daily, something more important, something infinitely greater and more powerful is taking place. Become aware of it, be on guard, wait a short while longer, wait and something new will overtake you. God will come, Jesus will take possession of you, and you will be redeemed people. So consider where you are looking for hope in this life. We must not let disillusionment with current events or mourning or guilt blind us to the redemptive power of Jesus Christ drawing near. This is what Advent is all about. Our challenge and my challenge to you is to stay faithful to God's future, stay alert in the present, and stay persistent in doing good works to the glory of God, Father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.